With that, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 18 as we continue this ridiculous, quote-unquote, trial of our Lord and King Jesus Christ. We're going to pick up tonight in verse 28, and I'm going to read to verse 40. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there is one in the pew right in front of you. John chapter 18, 28 to 40. Follow along with me. And then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early in the morning. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And then Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. And so Pilate said to them, Well, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. But the Jews said, well, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was an order that the word of Jesus, which he spoke, would be fulfilled, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. And so Pilate then entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this of of yourself or did others tell you this about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. So what have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And so Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you yourself said that I am a king. And for this reason I have been born and for this reason I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. So do you wish then that I release to you this king of the Jews? And they cried out, saying to him, No, not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. Let's have another quick word of prayer. Jesus It's always true that I need to be set aside so that what is spoken here from this platform is only what you would have your people hear, what it is that you yourself would teach. And so I pray, Lord, that I would be quiet, that I would not interject my own thoughts, opinions, or preferences into this passage, but that I would preach it as as you have written it. Thank you for this room. Thank you for this time and for this place. Thank you, King Jesus, for coming and dying for our sins, that we have hope beyond the walls of this world. Form us, mold us, conform us more into the image of yourself through the power of your Holy Spirit who is residing inside of us. And though sin has been conquered on the cross, Lord, help us to become a people more passionate about conquering it in our own lives. That we might have a more robust and powerful relationship with you and that the world would see it and that that would be contagious that the world would see us Christians and really see light, really see salt. But that takes boldness and it takes an affection for you that we need help to attain. So Lord, be with us, convict us, convert us, comfort us, Lord. Give your people what they need. We trust you in all things. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So I I was just in the back room with, with, with my dudes talking about how this 
uh, this sermon could easily be an hour and a half long. There's so much good stuff in here. I'm not going to do that. I'd kind of like to, but I won't. There's so much stuff in this passage. There's so much here. It's incredible. There's so much prophecy. There's so much Old Testament. There's so much power and, and control and love that Jesus is just blatantly living out right before our very eyes here in these pages. And I've been studying this all week, and I actually got really convicted by not just this passage, but we've seen this for months now. Jesus in the upper room discourse. Jesus in the high priestly prayer. Jesus here before the people who want to have him killed. We see his poise. We see his self-control. We see his discipline. We see him not reviling, not reacting, but responding in love. And everything is going wrong. Everything corporally is falling apart. This is God's plan coming to fruition. So I don't intend to say that Jesus is failing here, but when you look at the circumstances, people are lying about him, people are accusing him of things that he did not do, they're bogus charges, as we're going to see tonight, they're really bogus charges, and yet the trial goes forward. It progresses. He gets more and more close to the cross with every breath, and at any point, you're reading this, and you're like, this, this, this should stop. This is ridiculous. If this was a fight, they would have stopped it. This is, this is an absolutely pathetic attempt at these guys to accuse Jesus and yet and everybody knows it that's the most frustrating thing there's not a person in the building that thinks that Jesus has done anything wrong and yet he goes forward towards condemnation in their eyes and it's convicting to me because when everything goes wrong how do I react and I've had a really really good practice at that this whole week and I was on my way here today this is how good the Lord is I was on my way here today and I was feeling convicted by my bad attitude, because this last week, especially this last week, has been awful. You guys know that Angie's seven months pregnant, and we're remodeling our bathroom before the baby's born, and we knew this was gonna happen, but it's just like, so she's seven months pregnant, we don't have a toilet, we don't have a shower, I haven't showered since Tuesday, keep your distance. We're We're like, we're in and out of my mom's house to try to get stuff done. We had baby birthing class that we had to go to. I'm trying to think about what to do with the next, the next, uh, the next study that we're going to do at Dora Hope after we get through the parables, trying to prepare this sermon. One of my best friends had a construct. He f- was doing construction work and he fell and he he got a massive concussion. He's in the ICU. They're not letting. They might let him out today. So I'm stressed about that. Angie came down pretty sick. She's at home right now, not feeling well. And it's just been one of those weeks, you know. One of those weeks that all someone has to do is just not be driving quite fast enough and you just lose your temper. And I've been bummed. I've just been in a bad mood. And it hasn't manifested itself out in any like real tangible way. But I've just been grumpy. And I've been getting to bed at the end of every day just thinking, God, stupid sucks. It's awful. Stupid freaking stick. Good night. I love you. You know? And I've been convicted by that because... Look at what's happening to Jesus and look at how awesome he is all the way through. This is our king and he's inspiring. It's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's worth our worship. And this story is so tragic because he is so rad and he is, <laughs> he's willingly, purposely putting himself at the mercy of these total boneheads. But he's doing it out of love. We saw early in chapter 18, he spoke a word, and all of those Roman soldiers and temple police fell down on their butts. And then he let them 
arrest him. He let them put handcuffs on him. He let them put chains on him. And so now this circus of a court hearing has made its way to Pontius Pilate, the, the, the Roman governor at that time. And we're going to see, you know, go home and read Matthew, Mark, and Luke and, and get the whole gospel perspective on this guy, Pilate, very interesting character, but we, we, we're going to see here in John, but even more so if you go home and read the other gospel accounts, Pilate is torn here. And to understand why he's torn, to understand why he's not just this like bold, brash Roman, he's just like, kill him, I don't care, uh, he's conflicted. And to understand some of that confliction, he, he, he knows that Jesus is innocent. That's very clear. But he also is sort of pinned between his conscience and the Jews because he has to keep them happy. And to understand some of what's going on here, uh, we have to understand a little bit about Pontius Pilate's life or his career at the very least. Uh, we know that Pilate was governor from 26 to 36 AD in Judea, in Judea and that his time there was not great. And there's, there's many stories of him sort of stepping on, on top of a two-by-four and then trying to pick it up, just like not being smart. Um, but a couple of them that I'll share with you, and this is, this is why nobody really liked Pilate, um, there's a story of him bringing in what's called a, a standard. It's, they, they, from my understanding, it's one, uh, one type of a standard. Is, it's a flag. And it had the, a picture of Tiberius, the Roman Caesar, on it. And he brought these flags with Tiberius' picture on them into the, Roman temple, or into the, excuse me, into the Jewish temple, which is highly offensive. And so the, the Jewish people protested. And what they did is they sat around his house for five days, just in complete silence, but thousands of them surrounded his residence, sat there for five days, and he finally got so tired of them that he threatened them, and he said, I'm going to send my boys down there with their swords, and every one of you who isn't gone in five minutes, you're going to get your head chopped off. And it's reported in history that all of those Jews just went, all right. And then he knew, he's like, I can't slaughter these people. Dang it. You know, they called his bluff, so he looked like an idiot. And there was a few of these things that happened. He finally got booted from his role as, as governor because he, he, he tried to quell a rebellion and he killed, him, his soldiers killed uh, some, some, some Jewish uh, fanatics and that was the final straw and a long list of straws. And he finally got booted from his role and we're told by Eusebius, the ancient historian and exegete who was active in the 8030s, same time that, that, that Pilate was ruling, we're told by Eusebius that, that Pilate committed suicide and even I, that he was commanded to commit suicide. He was told, go kill yourself and, and he did. I don't know if that's true but that's what is according to Eusebius, and he's never been wrong before as far as I can tell. So anyhow, this is Pontius Pilate, and so now Jesus is brought to him, and it says that he was led from Caiaphas into the Praetorium, which is the Roman, it's the Roman court, it's where Pilate is, and it was early in the day, and they themselves did not enter into the Praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but that they might eat Passover. And if we know anything about these religious leaders, if we know anything about the Jewish authorities, we know that they're off base, but this is a, this is a level, this is story just, the, the word pathetic just comes to mind. These guys are worried about becoming ceremonially unclean by entering into a Gentile's residence while they're putting God to death. This ekes its way into our life, does it not? We can get so wrapped up with the details that forget about God. 
Forget about Jesus. And that's what these guys are doing here. They're, they tithe mint and cumin, but they forget the weightier things of the law. Here they are delivering God in the flesh over to be killed. And what they're concerned about is entering a dirty Gentile's house, which Gentiles aren't dirty, but they thought so. This is ridiculous. This is how ridiculous this whole thing is. And Jesus, in love, submits himself to this. So therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So by Roman law, they needed a charge. They needed to bring the accused to the accusers, and they needed to let Jesus speak for himself. The accused had a right to defend himself. And so Pilate comes right out and just says, what, like, what are we doing here? Let's get this done. We're going to see this. He's a man of business. He's, he's not messing around. He doesn't want to deal with any of the drama. Just get this in. Get it done. What did you do? What do we, have to, what do we need to continue? What charge do you bring against this man? Uh, and it's, it's told to us in Matthew 26 that a huge group of people came. We're told that the huge group of people came. They sought false testimony about Jesus. None of the testimony lined up, but still this whole circus continued. Mark 15 tells us that the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin were there with Jesus. So you just got to put yourself in, in Pilate's shoes for a minute. The night before, it had been asked of him, for eight or 900 of his soldiers to come get this Jesus guy. And now early in the morning, this mob comes. All of the Jewish authorities are there. Jesus by this time has been, has been roughed up a little bit. We read that. And so now Jesus is here looking bedraggled and beaten and probably bleeding from the face with this horde, this army that's bringing him. And Pilate's probably thinking like, this is like, we don't know exactly what Pilate knew about Jesus. He no doubt had heard of him. But this has got to be a bad guy. I mean, 800 of my soldiers went out to get this guy last night. And now here we are first thing in the morning with all of the, all of the Jewish authority spoken for. Who is this dude? What has he done? And as we're going to see, Jesus does not meet Pilate's expectations. He sees nothing evil in Jesus. He sees nothing wrong. What is all of this drama about so he asked, what is the charge? I love this. They answered and they said to Pilate, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Listen, we are the holiest of, we are the Sanhedrin. We don't make mistakes. We don't mess around. We know who this guy is. We have interviewed him. We have interrogated him. We have done due diligence. And we have decided that he is a criminal who needs punishing. And so just trust us. Trust us. We know what we're talking about. But Luke 23 tells us that they, they dug deep. They searched far and wide and high and low. And the charge that they finally did come up with in Luke 23, and remember this, this is important for the end of the sermon or the end of the text. They said in Luke 23 too, he opposes taxes to Caesar and, and claims that he is Christ the king. So now that might be, so okay, again, Pilate, think about Pilate. He's a Roman governor. He's dealing with people who commonly, always are coming up with these insurrections. And now here's this Jesus guy surrounded by a horde of people. And the accusation that they bring is, well, he says that he's a king and he doesn't like paying taxes to the Romans. But they're Jewish people that are saying this. He's not being accused by any Romans. Romans would have beef with a Jew not wanting to pay their taxes, but not the Jewish people. There's not a Jewish guy in town who wants to pay taxes to the Romans. The Romans literally walk the streets with spears and with swords, ready to cut down any one of these Israelites that's, out of, that's, that's acting out of, out of sorts. 
and you're, you're telling me that you're bringing him here because he doesn't want to pay taxes to Rome. None of you want to pay taxes. This is a joke. That's the charge that they come up with. He doesn't like Rome. He doesn't want to pay taxes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. The Roman authority, the oppressors over the people, this Jewish guy doesn't want to pay us money. That's, the, that's who, that's a lie. And we're told in scripture that, that Pilate knew. He knew that it was out of envy that these people were delivering him up. This is a ridiculous accusation. And he knows it. So he says, hey, you know what? Verse 31, take him and judge him according to your law. But the Jews said to him, well, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. All right, stop. Death. Now we're talking about death. This, this isn't so, what has he done? Well, he doesn't want to pay you taxes. Yeah, but, but death? This must have rung in Pilate's ears. Why are we talking about death here? You guys really want to put this guy to death. But what has he really done? Pilate's not buying it. He doesn't get it. And this is really unfortunate for the Jewish people because what's easy to miss here is that they are standing right smack dab in the middle of an Old Testament prophecy that they should have seen coming and they're completely oblivious to it. There's two things that are going on here. One is that all of this is very natural. If you read this story, everybody is doing exactly what they want to do. These, these Jewish people are handing Jesus over. Pilate doesn't really know what to do, but no one's being coerced. No one's being manipulated. But what's happening is exactly what God the Father had in mind. This is exactly the way that he needed this to play out. And we're going to see that unfold as this text continues. Uh, later on in the New Testament, Peter, our buddy Peter, and John, the author of this gospel, get into some trouble because they're, they're proclaiming the gospel. And they're arrested and then they're released and they start singing these, this praise to God. They break out in doxology and they say during this, this song that they're singing, during this praise that they give to God, they say this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles of the people and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose and your purpose predestined to occur. We're going to see this again and again and again. And the point that I'm trying to make when I bring that stuff up is that we can trust God that we can trust Jesus Christ, that our life might be a mess in small ways like mine was this week or in big ways. But we can trust Jesus. We can trust the Lord. All of this is chaos. All of it is a mess. All of it is really pathetic, but God is using it. God is doing something that he had preordained. And in this situation specifically, it's the salvation for the world. So let us be a people that trusts him even when things seem stupid. Don't make any sense. How many times do we raise our fists to the Lord and say, this doesn't make any sense to me. What are you doing and why? I can't tell you that all the time, but what I can tell you is that he's doing something. Here it is, right here. The other thing that's, <clears throat> excuse me, the other thing that's happening is that there is a straight fulfillment of an Old Testament. Genesis chapter 49, when Jacob is dying, he brings in his 12 sons to bless them. And he gets to his son Judah and we read this in Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, who is from the, the line of King David, who is then the line of Jesus, Jacob says to his son Judah, 
As for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him, Shiloh, shall be the obedience of all the people. What are we talking about here? Well, Jacob is prophesying over the line of Judah, and he says that the scepter will not depart. Well, what is that? Well, it's authority. This, the authority, the scepter of authority, the power of autonomy, it will, it will not be lost until Shiloh comes. And who is Shiloh? Well, Shiloh means to be at peace or to be at ease or to be one who is a peace giver, to be one who brings peace. And now here is Jesus, who Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, he, Jesus, is our peace. Jesus, the one who brings peace. Jesus, the one who submits himself to death so that he might bring life, is here before the Roman governor and the Jews don't have the scepter. They don't have the authority to kill him and that's why they're asking for Pilate's help. Here it is right in front of them. Their scepter is gone because the peace giver, Shiloh, Jesus, has come and they missed it. They completely missed it. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was an order, verse 32, that the word of Jesus which he spoke would be fulfilled, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So that his word would be fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said that he will be mocked, he will be flogged, and he will be crucified. He specifically uses crucifixion. Why does that matter? Because Jews didn't crucify people. The Jewish execution was done by stoning. That's what they always did. They stoned people to death. It was the Romans who invented crucifixion. And this again goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 verse 5. Isaiah writes that he was pierced through for our transgressions. It's things like this that make me unable to believe that the Bible was written by goat herders on the backside of the wilderness somewhere. It's too brilliant. Isaiah 49, verse 8 through 10. Isaiah 53, verse 5. And what was going to come to pass had to come to pass by this. Jesus is not being put to death by Jews. He's being put to death by Gentiles. Why does that matter? Because he was bound, prophesied, pre-known and foreordained to be crucified on a Roman cross, and Jews didn't do that. The amount of prophecy, the amount of wisdom, the amount that God is working here is staggering if you take the time to pause and look through it. It is worth noting that these guys didn't always care about obeying the law. We see that in Acts chapter 7. Impetuous mob violence. They wanted Stephen dead, so they threw him out into the street like a bunch of mafiosos, and they stoned him to death. And, even, and they didn't consult any Romans about that. And even in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus went back to Nazareth in the beginning of his ministry, his own townsfolk, the people that he grew up with, wanted, they tried to rip him out of the synagogue and throw him off of a cliff but he, he slipped through their grasp. And what the practice was then is that they would, this is brutal, they would throw someone off a cliff and if they died, great, but if they didn't, then they would lob rocks on them until they were dead. So these people aren't exactly the most, they don't have integrity. Let's say that. 
But here they are asking for help from the Roman governor, which is important, and we're going to see that again here in a minute. That these words would be fulfilled. Verse 33. And so therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? I think that that question is, I think that, I think that Pilate has got to be curious at this point. Who is this guy? Are you king of the Jews? He doesn't care about Jewish law. He doesn't care about Jewish tradition. He doesn't care about Jewish culture. But are you an enemy of Rome? Are you an insurrectionist? Are you a rabble rouser? Are you king of the Jews? What are you doing? A couple days ago, Jesus came into Jerusalem with thousands and thousands of people hailing him as their king. And now he is beaten, he is accused, he is arrested, and he is dragged before Pontius Pilate by a group of his own people who are clearly lying about him. And I don't know what Pilate's tone is here. There's, there's commentators that are all over the board here. Some of them think that Pilate like, really wants to know, like, are you the king of the Jews? But that's impossible because later he's going to say in verse 35, am I a Jew? I don't care. I, I, I don't know what his intention here is. I don't know why he's asking this question. It seems just by a basic reading that he's saying, y- y- like, you're bleeding on my floor. Like, you're some king? I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't, know if, <laughs> I don't know if this is really accurate. I don't know if what these people are saying about you is true. Verse 34, but Jesus answered saying, are you saying this from yourself or did others tell you about me? A simple yes or no answer is impossible here. Are you the king of the Jews? Um, yes, but no, right? In Jesus could have said here, listen, I, I told my disciples, I told my followers, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. And you know what? A few months back, I fed 25,000 people miraculously with a kid's sack lunch, and the people were so stoked that they wanted very, right then and there to make me their king, and I, I booked, I dipped into the mountains because I'm not about this terrestrial kingdom. John 6, 15. They were going to take him by force and make him their king, and he left. So am I, am I the king? Well, no, not... Not in the sense that you're taking it, but if you're asking, am I a king, then the answer is yes. Jesus is not just king of the Jews. Jesus is king of the cosmos. So are you really wanting to know, are you really asking, or have you just heard rumors and asking me if I'm what these guys say I am, is what Jesus is saying here. And Pilate, he gives up his, he shows his cards, he shows where his heart's at, he answers back, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What did you do? He's not interested. He doesn't care. It seems like everybody here is really interested about who Jesus, in, in who Jesus is except Pilate. The, the Jews want him delivered over. They want him killed because they're threatened by him. Even Pilate's wife has an opinion about Jesus. We're told in Matthew that she handed him, or she had a note sent to him saying, have nothing to do with this man, for I have suffered greatly because of him in a dream. That's Matthew 27, 19. But Pilate's response is very telling. Am I a Jew? I don't know nothing about your business. I don't know nothing about your religion. I don't know nothing about what you people do. But if you did something wrong, then we can talk. Did you do anything wrong? What have you done? Your own people are delivering you over to me. In verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Now, this response of Jesus, we could talk about this for an hour. This is, this is amazing. 
This is amazing because it takes us, at the very least, it takes us all the way back to the book of Daniel. Chapters 2, chapter 4, chapter 7. Because what we see in Daniel is this, this concept of kingdom. Kingdom is all over the book of Daniel. Daniel was a, an Israelite who was taken into Babylonian captivity. And the Lord gifted him with the ability to interpret dreams. And so King Nebuchadnezzar starts having bad dreams. And I'm just going to paraphrase all of this. He calls on Daniel and Daniel says, those bad dreams that you're having, it's it's, a, it's a, a succession of kingdoms. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue that has, that's made of different kinds of metal as you go down, gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay in the feet. And then there's this giant rock that comes and smashes the statue. And Daniel says, that's a king, that's, those, are, those are successive kingdoms. There's going to be a kingdom, you. One's going to come after you that's going to defeat you. And then another kingdom's going to come after them that's going to defeat them. And another kingdom's going to come after them that's going to defeat them. How do kingdoms defeat each other? They kill each other. It's the bigger dog in the fight. I kill you, I take what's yours, and now it is mine. That's how the kingdoms operate. We've been doing it ever since. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream where he sees this giant tree and it gets stripped all the way down to the stump and he asks Daniel what it means and Daniel says, it's you. You're the tree. You're big, you're bad, you've got big old branches, everybody's, everybody's partying and the surplus that you have provided for them but you're gonna be brought low. You're going to lose. Daniel chapter five, probably my personal favorite Old Testament story, Belshazzar getting down and dirty, like orgy style, it's gross and God's finger comes in and writes on the wall. And the King Jimmy says that Belshazzar got so scared that he pooped his pants. And I think that we should keep that in the Bible. But they cleaned it up because they thought we couldn't handle it. But the finger comes, the, God, the finger of God comes and writes on the wall, many, many tekel of harshin, which means you've been weighed and you've been found wanting. Your kingdom is done. And at the end of Daniel chapter 5, that very night, the Persians went under the wall of Babylon. Brilliant military victory. We don't have time to get into it, but it's fascinating. And they killed Belshazzar that night and Babylon fell. Brilliant. Chapter 7. Daniel has a dream of his own. And he says, I was looking into my vision. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Go home and, and study this stuff. It's amazing. I was looking into my vision by night, and behold, four, the four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea. And four beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. And he goes on to describe these beasts. One's like a lion. One's like a bear. One's like a leopard. And then one... He says the fourth beast, he doesn't even say what kind of animal it was. He says the fourth beast was fearsome and terrifying and extraordinarily strong. It had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. What, is, what are these beasts? Verse 15 and 16 and following. These great beasts, which are four in number, this is his vision being interpreted. The, the great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. Kingdoms coming 
and devouring one another, raping and pillaging and murdering again and again and again. This is what human beings do. But right smack dab in the middle of all of this drama in Daniel chapter 7, there's, there's mention of another kingdom, and this is where I'm heading with this. Pay attention. Daniel chapter 7, right in the middle of this, between the dream and the interpretation of the dream, chapter 7 verse 13 Daniel writes this, and I kept looking into the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man. And this is why Jesus referred to himself more than with, he, he referred to himself as the son of man more than anything else. He does it all the time in the other gospels. And it's not some like, like, like humble brag where he's like, I'm God, but I'm also born, I was, my mom's human, I was born of a human, I'm 100% human too, I'm like you, we can relate to one another. It is a claim to deity. It's a claim to the Old Testament prophecy of one who is like a son of man coming straight out of Daniel chapter 7. This is who Jesus says he is. One like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all the peoples and nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. And that, I would posit, is exactly what human beings want. We want our kingdoms to never be destroyed. We want power. We want influence. We want money. We want fame. And we never want it to go away. And this son of man comes and is promised an everlasting kingdom. And now Jesus, now follow through history, the four beasts, Babylon, Persia, in Daniel chapter 5, Alexander the Great came in with, with Greek, and then Rome, the four beasts. And now God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, come to seek and to save us from our sin, is standing before the Roman governor. Are you kidding me? This is epic. This is sick. Jesus is rad. My kingdom is not of this world. Have you read Daniel 7? Those kings killed for their kingdom. Jesus, who is the, has the upside down kingdom compared to ours, dies for his. This is your Lord and King. Submit to him and do what he says. He's trustworthy. I've been reading 1 Peter a lot the last couple weeks. And... 1 Peter chapter 1 is so bomb, so rad. And Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1, he says, life's going to be a bummer. It is. It's going to be a real drag. Jesus says the same thing in John 16. In this world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. But the upside, the other side of that coin, Peter says, though you have suffered these various trials, you rejoice. You rejoice. Why? Because he says that, he says, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You have an inheritance that has promised you. It's kept for you. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Remember that. Think about that. Meditate on that. Study that. Learn of that. Let that renew your mind. Let that infuse your thinking when you're having a bad week like I've had. When you're having a bad week that's probably worse than the one that I've had at someone's deathbed, at someone's diagnosis that's terminal. Remember this. He says, rejoice in this. Your faith is being tested, Peter says. 
And Peter goes on to say that we have been saved for righteousness. We don't just get saved from sin and then dabble in it because we can. We get saved and we get redeemed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers, Peter says. Jesus saves us from our sins and then radically wants to change our lives here and now. And Christians are really good at one of those things and not so good at the other. But this is, look at how rad Jesus is. Look at how radical he is. Let's obey him. Let's trust him. I'm saying that to me too. I need this word. I need John 18, 28 through 40. My kingdom is not of this world. That's what Peter got in trouble for. Peter drew the sword, went for Malchus's head, got his ear. <laughs> Jesus doesn't need that. And he says that if my kingdom were of this world, then my people would be fighting. Peter, put your sword away. He says in Matthew 26, listen, do you not understand that I could call on my father and he with that would send 12 legions of angels? I mean, us fighting God, us like, it's like throwing hard-boiled eggs at a German tank. It just isn't going to do anything. If Jesus wanted to, he could blow on us and we would be gone. But that is not the kingdom that he came to set up. He came to die. He came to submit. And we see it happening right here in this chapter. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered and said, you yourself said that I am a king. And for this reason I was born. And for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So much, so much could be said about this, but I'll, but I'll leave it here. He is a king. He is in chains. Pilate's confused. But Jesus says, I have come to testify to the truth, the truth of sin, the truth of God, the truth of, of forgiveness, the truth of salvation. And then he says something convicting here. He says, my kingdom, or he says, excuse me, he says that everyone who is of the truth will hear my voice. And I hear ringing in this, in this statement from Jesus, another statement that he made in Matthew chapter 13. His disciples ask him, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, and he says, so that they see, but they do not perceive, so that they hear, but they do not understand. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Lord says, who shall I send, and who shall go forth for us? And Isaiah says, I'm here, I'll go. And the Lord says, go, preach, so that they see and do not understand, so that they hear and do not perceive. And what Jesus is saying here is, the reason why I speak in parables in Matthew, in, in Matthew 13, the reason why I speak in parables is because people are going to hear parables and they're going to do one of two things. They're not going to get it. And so they're going to go, ah, just another weird rabble-rousing insurrectionist wannabe. We've seen him before. Dime a dozen. He's a carpenter from Nazareth. Forget about him. Or they're going to go, what'd you say? Say that again. I want to know. We're told in John 7, 17 that anyone who is willing to obey, anyone who's willing will then know that what I say is not from me but from the Father. Are you, are you willing? Am I, am I willing? Because that draws a line in the sand. It's a very clear line too. This, it, <laughs> I love Joe Rogan and he's so blunt about the Bible. He's like, the Bible is stupid. Tear the pages out and use them to roll spliffs. The Bible is ridiculous. He he. he he insults it. He thinks that it's stupid. He thinks that people who believe in the Bible are stupid because it's an old ancient book. And Jesus is a washed up has-been and we should move on past that. And Jesus is saying here, if you're of the truth, you will hear my voice. Now, I hope that Joe Rogan gets saved one day. We do not, that's not our business. 
If he was here in Portland, I'd talk to him about the Lord, but he's not here. It's not my business. But Jesus is saying, people who are of the truth will hear my voice. And Portland loves, we're going to see in a moment, <laughs> Pilate, what is truth. Portland loves that. Portland loves that. Portland loves to just kind of figure out whatever it is that feels good and that is their truth. But what Jesus is saying here, what God is saying here is that if you have some form of truth that you hold on to and it is devoid of the person Jesus Christ, it is not truth. It is not ultimate truth. It is not for real truth. It's not eternal truth. It might be some sort of piece of the truth, but it's not the truth truth. Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And those who are his will hear his voice and say, say that again, please keep talking. The opposite is what Pilate does here. Verse 35, what is truth? Excuse me, where am I? Pilate said, Pilate said to him, verse 38, what is truth? And then he turned around and he went out, interesting, and he said, I find no guilt in him. Pilate doesn't bow the knee. Pilate's not a Christian. Pilate doesn't really want to be in the situation at all. If he, may, if he, he knows that Jesus is innocent, so he's hesitant to condemn him to death. But he also knows that if he doesn't, and this massive amount of people out in front of his praetorium rebel, then he's going to lose his place. He might be removed from power because he's unable to keep the people well behaved. He says, what is truth? And he walks away. And even as an enemy... He declares, this is a lamb without blemish. This is a lamb without spot. I find no guilt in him. The man with all the power declares that Jesus is no insurrectionist. And this just emphasizes the guilt of the Jewish people all the, all the more. And we're told later on, you know, it's interesting when you go into the New Testament writings of the church, Acts and on, that whenever people are preaching about what happened to Jesus, they don't blame, they don't blame Pilate. They don't blame the Romans. They say it again and again and again, you did this. You gave him over. You nailed him to a cross. Acts 3.13, Acts 2.23. You, Israel, you did this. This is on you. And maybe most aggressively, Matthew 27, remember whenever uh, Pilate asked, like, hey, you want to let this guy go? And they said, what do they say? They say, no, crucify him. So Pilate washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people cry out again and again and again, let his blood be on us, on our heads, and on the heads of our children. It's aggressive. It's aggressive. But the good news is, is that we know from Acts chapter 2 that 3,000 of those people got saved in one day. That's how deep Jesus' grace goes. Even those who call out for his blood are not beyond his saving grace if they would repent. So Jesus is delivered out of envy and he is sent to die out of fear and everyone is worried about what Jesus could do to them. Isn't that interesting? Isn't this crazy? We see this sword. Jesus said, I came not to bring peace but to bring a sword. Ultimately, he is the peace giver. Yes, but here on earth, Jesus is divisive. Here terrestrially, he is divisive. And we see that divide happening, playing out right before our very eyes Pilate's worried about what he's going to do with Jesus. The people are worried about what's going to happen with Jesus. They want him dead. Pilate doesn't know what to do. This is exactly what, <laughs> this is exactly what uniting yourself to Jesus is going to do in your life. It's going to, he, he is going to cause trouble, and it's so worth it. But are you ready for it? I feel like so many times 
for so many decades now, people have come to church to just feel good. That's not the whole story. There's a lot to feel good about in the Bible. There's a lot to feel good about with the love and the grace and the kindness and the slow to anger that we see in Jesus, the tenacity that he has. He set his face like flint to go to the cross so that you might have eternal life. But here on planet Earth, it's going to get rough. Are you a Christian? Those, those rough moments, Peter says, test our faith. Closing out, verse 39 and 40. So you have a custom. So this is, listen to this and I'll be done. But you have a custom that I released someone for you at the Passover. And so who do you wish that I released to you? This, do, you re, do you wish that I release this king of the Jews? And they cried out again saying, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. End of chapter 18. This is the great irony. This is how ridiculous this is. Remember I mentioned earlier that the accusation that they brought, the charge they brought against Jesus is that he didn't want to pay taxes. He taught don't pay taxes, which was a lie. It was a lie. But even if it was true, Pilate's not impressed. There's no Jews that want to pay taxes. So you as Jewish people are going to tell me that your Jewish friend doesn't want, I'm not buying it. Barabbas was a robber. Who are they asking for here at the end? Who is Barabbas? Well, we're told here that he's a robber, but we're told in Matthew 27 that he was a notorious robber. He was FBI's top 10. People knew who he was. El Chapo. People had it. His name was in the paper. Mark 15, 7 says that he was a murderer and an insurrectionist. Matthew 23 says that he was a murderer and an insurrectionist. He was one who came up and rebelled against Rome, which is exactly the accusation they made about Jesus. We're delivering him to you because he doesn't want to pay his taxes. Give us the guy who actually killed people trying to destroy the Roman authority. This is infuriatingly pathetic. And every step of the way, Jesus kept his mouth shut and he let it happen. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because the cross had to happen. He had to be delivered over to the Gentiles. He could not be killed by the Jews. It was determined in the sovereignty of God from all of eternity that he would die on a cross. And look at how he made it happen. People just made choices. They did what they do. And Jesus let it happen. The God who spoke, Niagara falls into existence. You know, We're impressed with our kids' finger paintings. God made Niagara Falls, bro. That same God submitted himself to irons, to chains, to beatings, to lying, so that we could have life and have it abundantly, so that we could have eternity. And I hope that that convicts you. I hope that that bugs you. I hope that that you go home tonight with that and you feel it. I hope that he uses the word of his own word to convict your heart and to comfort you and and to... to love you. We're told in Zephaniah that he sings over you. But friends, in order to understand, he's doing this because of sin. This is why he came. And it's a lifelong process to conquer sin. And friends, I'm right there with you. But I'm feeling more and more and more of a pull. The older that I get, and now, you know, I've only been here for a year, but it's a year, and I'm just feeling more and more this need to tell Christians, let's 
put to death the things that are waging war, the, the works of the flesh that wage war against our soul because it's those very things that Jesus had to come and die for. It's the punishment of those sins and we dabble in them because we just don't take this that seriously. We have to take this seriously and it's the best. Jesus is the best. Do that with me. Man, I'm with y'all. I'm with y'all. I'm not trying to stand up here and, and say shoo, shoo, boo, boo. I'm right here with you, friends. I'm right here with you and this week proved it. I'm burnt out. Praise God, my faith's being tested. Jesus is good. Amen?